So there's a uh, song by the Smashing Pumpkins called Starla on their 1994 B-Sides album, Pisces Iscariot. Um, I dug the pumpkins a lot as a kid, learned how to play a lot of their songs on guitar, including Starla. Uh, you went so far as to quote some lyrics from that song um, for my senior photo in the high school yearbook, Lansing Catholic Central, class of 1998. And this set of lyrics are, I don't know, I guess a bit vague, as lyrics can tend to be, but I liked them. Um, so to quote, uh, it goes like this. Serve yourself. No one else can do for you like you, and no one else fails like me. In my eyes, I burn alive. Fly like a bird. No more words, just you and I high in the sky. So, you know, 15-year-old me, <laughs> I guess thought that was pretty cool but you know it's i think part of it is starla's a, a, a long song that goes through these big peaks and valleys of distortion and jangly reverberating guitars and this particular set of lyrics i guess i liked because it's like right there in that soft middle right before um the band re-enters and billy corgan just unleashes this insane like heart-stopping guitar riff it sounds like he's literally like ripping the guitar in half and somehow staying in tune. It's just like, to me, one of the coolest moments through all of the Smashing Pumpkins recordings. And the thing is, that's that's the lyrics are not all that's there in this buildup. Um, right as he's ending the line, no more words, just you and I, the recording of the song catches some sirens uh, of an ambulance. Uh, not something you'd ever think would normally be on a recording, you know, but things happen, and, and I guess, you know, not everything is about the purity of sound. So the Pumpkins were and are based out of Chicago. They recorded this at Soundworks Studio in Chicago, that song Star Starla. Um, pumpkins certainly have had their ups and downs, but um, my friend, colleague, and fellow Smashing Pumpkins fan, Kat Hawkins, however, has found her way to Chicago herself with a lot of things going her way right now, advancing her career the right way, the right way uh, with integrity and demanding integrity from others. Uh, we recorded this interview with Kat on a third-story patio at a friend's place somewhere in Chicago, and in this recording, you will from time to time hear some sirens in the background. I thought that was fitting, and I hope you're cool with that. So call it B-Side Production if you like, but some of the best songs ever written were B-sides. You know, Fleetwood Mac's Silver Springs, um, God Only Knows by the Beach Boys, which, by the way, was used perfectly in the movie Boogie Nights. Uh, so this talk with Kat was extremely enjoyable, and maybe it'll be the B-side we create, hopefully the best one. So from Downriver to River North, here's Kat Hawkins. Enjoy, and thanks for listening. Hey, this is Justin with the Small Town Psalm podcast. This is a cool one for me. Um, I have a few friends in this business I've known for uh, longer than others. And this particular guest, I would say, fits into that category. A very good friend of mine, Kat Hawkins, based out of Chicago at Shaw's Crab House. You might find in River North as the beverage director. Has done an incredible job in her uh, landing in Chicago and killing it 
if anyone is wondering, she's also enjoying her life right now. If you might hear the sirens in the background, uh, where exactly are you right now? I am on my best friend's uh, third floor rooftop, uh, enjoying some coffee here this morning. Uh, the Lincoln Park neighborhood in Chicago. So what's the, what's the weather like overall? How, are, how is the end of summer feeling? There was a little bit of a, a dreary couple of days, but it has been absolutely gorgeous the last couple of mornings. So thanks for putting up with the sirens so I can enjoy it on my day off here. I mean, at the end of the day, this is a, this is like this is like a bony Vair podcast. So I mean, I, yeah, I don't really, uh, I'm not, I'm not too worried about getting the audio so pure at this point. I'm just trying to, <laughs> just trying to have fun and have have a good conversation. Uh, you know, there's a couple of things that I think about when I think about your move to Chicago. Um, I know a little bit about why, but that's you know, those things can change over time. Those reasons change. The the things that you like about the cities that you've lived in change. Um, can you give some background on? Not necessarily where you started, but just the last few years and, and your sommelier career, what wine has meant to you the last few years? Certainly. Um, so as you know, that question changes over time, which is a really interesting thing to be able to sit back and observe, right? You know, you start out in this business and you're so excited by certain aspects, whether it be tasting you know, expensive wines or rare wines or making new friends or getting to travel. There's, there's a draw. Um, and that kind of, that changes over the course of your career. For me, I wanted to move because I felt like I needed to be challenged, not only by just wine as a good, um, uh, or a commodity, but uh, by wine as a community, by wine as an educational effort and, it was becoming difficult to feel challenged in a market that I had grown up in and that I had learned in. So I needed to drop in somewhere a little larger to see if I could really um, navigate and kind of swim with the big boys. And I think I did okay. <laughs> so, so what was the what was the progression like for you in Metro Detroit? Um, I started out. Do, do you want to go all the way back to like serving yeah, oh, days? Yeah. Sure, right. yeah, sure. All right, let's do it. So. It's a really interesting story, at least to me anyway. Um, <laughs> I was going to school initially um, for pre-law a million years ago, and I wanted to be an attorney. And um, then I stopped doing that um, and kind of just migrated over to whatever four-year degree w would come quickly, and that ended up being communications um, but throughout this time, I'd worked in restaurants. I'd always served and bartended and was kind of captivated by the whole industry and hospitality, and food and beverage. And um, so the company I worked for decided that they wanted a wine expert or sommelier in each and every store. They operated multiple outlets around the metro Detroit area. And if you showed initiative, they would pay for your CSW exam. Um, you would get to take on some responsibilities uh, a little bit as the wine buyer, um, and you'd get a $1,000 bonus. And, you know, as a broke college kid who said, you know what, give me that book. You want me to read a book and take a test for $1,000? Let's do it. And it ended up being so much more than that because wine is, is everything. It's, it's service, it's hospitality, it's sales, it's, you know, supply chain, it's agriculture, it's weather and climate and um it was never boring. 
it was an outlet to, to being never boring. You could, you could change the lens through which you looked at it as often as you liked and, and you could still find something new. So that was really uh, captivating. The other thing is I had taken French for like 10 years between middle school, high school and college. And a lot of the introductory terminology is in French. So it was, that wasn't a barrier I had to overcome. It was pretty easy to retain those words and that knowledge, which I know a lot of people don't have that luxury right off the bat. So that was kind of cool. Um, and then I had this, it just so happened to, to line up this way. The science requirement that I was taking to finish my degree program just so happened to be geology with a lab at the same time I was just getting into wine. So you're reading about, you know, schist and marl and clay, and you're trying to envision why those things are important to crops, right? And here I was doing it twice a week in a lab, running experiments on how these different soils were, were dense and how they reacted with, with other things. And it just, I don't know, it was so serendipitous. It lined up in such a way that it was like, wow, maybe I'm meant to do this. Does it, does it seem like in, in hindsight that, not that this is some sort of fortuitous, oh my God, I can't believe it, but, but I mean, it sounds like you put work in. It's not exactly like, the, it sounds like the stars aligned. Like you made it, you made it happen. Yeah, there's certainly a, a fair amount of work to be put in on any new endeavor. I just, I don't know, it felt right, if that makes sense. It felt right that the work I was doing, um, like it was going in the right direction. When you say the right direction, does that mean like you're building something for yourself or my work has meaning and I enjoy the meaning or what does that mean? I think both. Um, it felt like uh, the work I was doing, yeah, was headed in in a direction that made me happy. I mean, sometimes it's really kind of what drives anyone just to get your ass out of bed in the first place <laughs> and, go, and go to work is, is my, is my work day going to suck? Right. <laughs> and if the answer is no, then you're probably headed in you know, the right direction, I guess I would say. Well, and it sucks considerably less when you can, you can drink. <laughs> I mean, I mean, there is that thing like, you know, you taste, Mm -hmm. an intoxicant for a living you're i mean you're selling something that is inevitably a drug uh you're tasting it you're evaluating and then uh, you get to a position where all of a sudden you're you're in chicago you're in uh river north kind of like central area of what people might call like touristy parts of chicago mm -hmm. and you're getting lots of people who don't really know anything about you to people who are regulars and the sales culture is really different too. I mean, like I know what I do as a buyer, uh, I'm not the lead buyer anymore. I've, I passed that off long ago to my general manager, but it's, it seems very different in, in comparison to what Michigan has been like, like I am used to dealing with somewhere between four and eight sales reps and we up to 12, on occasion, but your, your sort of path with salespeople is very different. Like, it seems like there's a lot more. It seems like it's like a little more packed and crazy. Absolutely. Uh, so I think that goes back to how Michigan and Illinois are fundamentally different in how they sell alcohol. Michigan being a control state um, where the, the state government controls pretty much anything and everything that comes in and what selections and based on 
how much of that selection sells in any given time frame versus the state of Illinois, which um, is not a control state. And so there's so much more product widely available and in turn, so many more distributors um, of varying size that are able to pop up and support themselves. So right now in Michigan, pricing is a bottle one price. For those that don't know what that means, that basically means I, if I want to buy this bottle of Kendall Jackson Chardonnay and it's whatever it is, $9 for a post-off price, which is the sale price, that is the same price for everybody, quote, unquote. Um, what that means, I think everyone in the industry knows this, is that there's I'm not, this is not a KJ thing. This is, I'm just using KJ as an example, but there are most certainly distributors and suppliers that offer illegal free goods to build their way into beverage programs and retailers. And some of those beverage programs and retailers take part, some don't. And generally speaking, all that stuff is usually pretty hush hush, uh, but there are some that are a little bit more obvious about it. And isn't that just the fun world of corruption of, mm-hmm. of alcohol in the United States? But Chicago is different. Illinois is definitely different. What, what's that situation like overall for pricing and competition and things like that? Well, I have to say that coming in, that was my biggest fear, right? Um, walking in, taking over an extremely large program. You know, Shaw's does about $20 million a year in sales annually, non-COVID times. So you can imagine dealing with liquor, beer, and wine, what percentage of sales my department makes up. And so it was something that I was nervous about is not really knowing um, how to navigate those systems, right? Uh, Because coming from Michigan, you can't. There's no no, um, negotiation on price or volume. And so that was a little challenging, but not really. Um, it was more of a personal challenge having to ask those questions saying like, no, I want a better price because where I came from, there was no better price. Right. So it was strange having to feel comfortable in your own skin and leveraging, uh, connections and relationships and volume that you're, you're doing. Right. Cause you know, being trained in a, this is the price kind of world versus, uh, we've got some wiggle room, uh, is a little, is a little challenging. So you you're new to Chicago, you're new to the state, you don't understand or know all of the intricacies or rules and regulations that surround the sales of wine. And in that process, did you find companies or uh, sales reps who were a little bit shy or hesitant to tell you uh, with candor exactly how things worked with their company? Absolutely not. That's awesome. Yeah, absolutely not. Um, Everybody that's on my account has always been a real pro. Um, I mean, $20 million in sales will tell you to do, to do business <laughs> with the right way. I mean, you don't want to mess up that account. Well, and, you know, everybody has had such a long relationship with, with the business before I walked in. Shaw's is 35 years old this year, so it's a longtime staple um, that has had a lot of really good people come through the doors. So... I think that just being able to carry on those relationships and, and that tradition of, of doing good business um, is important. And everybody was, was really on board with that. You know, there were a few, a few hiccups along the way. 
Um, I am clearly not a male buyer, which is something that some of the old school gentlemen who had walked through the door were not expecting a five foot one blonde woman who looks approximately 16 years old. <laughs> um, and there were a couple of people that, that pushed back on that, but certainly that was the minority. And, uh, I've had a really run with my, the people on my account. Many of them I call friends outside of the workplace after two years of being here. So I'm really fortunate for that. Well, everything I know about the corporate culture at Lettuce is pretty positive, all things considered. Oh, absolutely. You know, I mean, I know it's an enormous company, and I know that there are certain things that no one should really be talking about uh, regarding their company, but, like, this is, like, a, a no-bullshit line. Like, I, I mean, the, through the people I know at Lettuce Entertain You, like, I've just never heard negative feedback. And, like, that's, an that's a pretty incredible reputation builder because once – your crew is outside your walls. They can say whatever the hell they want to. They're not, I mean, they're not contractually obligated to say that they had a good day when they're hanging out with their friends that night over, you know, over some whiskey. Like that's, that's not how it goes. And you've never, I've never heard you say something bad regarding your work life and balance and overall uh, ability to assert yourself in your role. It's a really remarkable thing, right? Um, I've worked for, several different size companies and restaurants uh, over the years. And it's interesting that the largest one with the most people and the most layers is the most transparent and the most caring. You know, they, they start you out as a manager for Less Entertain You with this giant workbook and this huge online program. And it's three months. And you're like, damn, you know, I was you know, I'm thinking I was a GM where I came from, like, this shouldn't be, this shouldn't be too bad. It's a lot of work, but it's worth it because what they force you to do right off the, right off the bat is to um, learn the company culture. And they not only talk the talk, they walk the walk. And um, that's something that's really refreshing. The other thing that they do is, as a front of house manager, you not only work every front of house position, but you work every back of house position as well. And it seems a little redundant at the time, or like, you know, as somebody who's new to that culture and that style of training, you're like, oh, well, why do I have to do this? And you learn that it's about building relationships. And truthfully, it was the most valuable part of training because now, you know, I can walk back to the sushi team and give good direction or I know where certain supplies are more quickly because I worked that station. Um, it's, it's just such a, a great thing. You feel kind of awkward about it at the time, uh, but after you get through it, you're like, wow, I'm, I'm really glad that I worked with the receiver from six in the morning till four in the afternoon because in a building as large as mine, um, I can tell you where literally everything is because I put it away. You know, and I would imagine that as you're doing this sort of rotational temper temporary thing, like it probably clicks somewhere in your head. Like this isn't weird because they are used to this. They are used to people coming yep. in and, and hanging out with them for a few hours and learning it. So why would it be weird to me? Yeah, it's just, um, you know, again, it was the small fish, big pond kind of thing. Right. So I had a lot of 
things to to get over with that, right? You know, Detroit native. Um, it's a very it's a smaller city with less people, and so you know, I had moved and dropped myself into this neighborhood that I was a little bit familiar with, but like, you know, I don't know where the bank is or the post office or even where I'm going to be able to park my car at certain times of the day because this is a much bigger city, right? Um, and then I get to work and, you know, you got a staff of like 250 that you have to learn their names and, and then you're trying to learn the food and where stuff goes. And it's just like, it's sensory overload at first. And also within those first couple of weeks, uh, Shaw's has a, another location out in the suburbs, about 35 miles west of here. And, uh, I started working there rather quickly too. So, you know, you add another hundred people on top of that. So learning like 350 names and trying to be respectful and, and remember everybody's kind of like role and story. And you're just like, oh, this is a lot, <laughs> but it was good. And, and it was good to finally feel a little bit uncomfortable in order to grow. Well, so now you're in a completely different position. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's, I mean, it's, it's kind of weird and, I mean, what do you say to those 350 people that you have virtually no control over that, you know, the world has essentially changed, <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's just so complicated and bizarre. It is, but you know, overall, and I found like, even through the like growing pains of, of, you know, learning their name or forgetting their name or, you know, whatever, whatever it was, or maybe not giving the best direction because it's not the way they, they did it for, you know, the last 10 years or whatever. Um, being kind goes a very long way, <laughs> you know, like, I'm so sorry. You've told me your name six times. I, I, I feel so embarrassed that I don't remember, but that's, that's the culture is, you know, caring and kindness and, uh, everybody moving forward. So it's been a really great place to, to land here. You know, it's been two years now and I'm grateful every single day for the opportunity. And you're still making it through during this interesting pandemic situation. Mm-hmm. And, and everyone's got staff cutbacks at this point. I think that's pretty clear. So that's, yeah. I mean, that's unfortunate. We're dealing with the same thing. We're, I don't know the exact percentage off the top of my head. I would say we're probably running at 40 to 50% labor. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's something that really kind of frightens me as, as an owner. And I'm sure that, that uh, you know, the, the board or whoever it is that owns lettuce probably feels those same, you know, hardships that people who've worked with them for 20 years all of a sudden they have to say listen we've only got 10 hours for you this week like like that's gotta that's gotta be a a a serious downside for for anyone in management they've been extremely transparent about everything from the get-go um the president of the company sends out mass emails and text messages and communicates the same united message to everyone which has been extremely helpful in management because that's what you want is a positive and clear and united front. Um, and the other thing, back to kind of how they not only talk the talk, but right, is um, the CEO of our company, um, Shaw's Crab House is near and dear to his heart. It was his store that he opened. It's named after his late wife's family. We're the Shaw family. And so we get to see Kevin Brown quite a bit. And I was chatting with him not too long ago, just kind of about the state of things. And he's such a kind and positive man. 
And what he said was, Kat, you know, we're going to make it through this. Our goal is to break even and employ as many people as possible. The more people we can bring back to work, the better we are. And that was like so comforting um, and so genuine. And it's, again, reassures you that you're in the right place. I feel like as a restaurateur, that's all you can do. Like I, I have straight given up the idea that I'm going to make money this year. I just, I just, I don't think it's possible. I think it's, I think you make it through until things are normal again, whatever that ends up looking like. And you give people hours and you just, you make it going, you make it work. You, and hopefully 2021 is one of those situations where, where things get solved and all of a sudden things feel good again. And, uh, you know, that's one thing I've learned a lot about most of my friends in hospitality is not necessarily that they are uh, the kind of people that are just hard workers, but you learn how to grind out difficult situations. And one particular thing about Detroit and my friends in Detroit is that we've, I think there's this extra added layer of that grind because there's never really been like a SOM culture. Um, Correct. I feel like there's sort of has with, with sommeliers, but it's, it's driven in a way that's more collectively a beverage culture. I don't know. How would you describe it? Ooh, I love this. Um, because I think over time, our, our friend group, our colleague group has talked about this quite a bit in Detroit. Um, I think it is more of a collective mixed beverage culture. Um, there certainly were very few, if any, true sommelier positions ever available in Detroit. And, you know, as much as I was... Uh, grumbling about that for years it certainly has paid off now um being able to be both an operator and a beverage professional is something that has like paid dividends right you know i have a job because of that because i can do both um i will i will always have a job right um yeah, and that, if you only have one skill, yeah. like you're the first to go. <laughs> yeah, I was having this conversation the other day. You know, there's three kind of luxury, luxury positions in restaurants that, that go first, right? Um, the maitre d', unless they're some sort of manager, right? The maitre d', uh, the pastry chef, because ultimately somebody else can probably handle that. Um, and the sommelier, right? Unless you can double in your role as some other support system or operationally, like those are, those are window dressing. They're fancy positions that you're right. When it comes to the health of the operation, they're usually the first to go. And I don't think anyone can blame an operator for having to want to, you know, wanting to keep their lights on and and employ as many people as possible. But, but that is a position I think most sommeliers are, are, they feel those feelings right now in 2020. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not shocked at all to hear you say anything like that. And, you know, the trends have been interesting. You know, I know we talked prior about trends in retail versus restaurants. Um, you know, what would you say overall has been the vibe of, of not necessarily customers of your location, but, but people who go out in general? What does it feel like going out right now? Hmm. I have limited scope in this because one, I'm at work a lot. And two, (laughs) (laughs) I've been trying to limit uh, the amount of exposure I have going out, right? You know, I work- So being safe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I work in a restaurant. We try to keep our bubble as tight as, Um, obviously we're following all the protocols. We're masked up and you know, we've gone out mostly to patio 
kind of service type places and a bit but um trends value is certainly important um i found that my buy the glass program and my i would say you know 59 to 89 dollar a bottle range is uh kind of flying out the door versus pre-covid where it was kind of that like 89 to 120 slot um so i think people are definitely trying to get more bang for their buck and um it's still a pretty equal mix for me between uh liquor and wine uh beer is always a really small makeup of of sales for me but um I would, I would think it's, it's pretty equal still between spirits and, and wine. Well, it certainly stabilizes your beverage program. You know, that's something that I think about a lot. Like, you never really know who's going to move nearby, what kind of tourists are going to draw, what kind of events, you know, come into um, your market. So it's like if you have a diversified program, that certainly allows people to, like, build trust that, like, they're going to have a good time when they come hang out with you. Right. Well, and, and the events thing is killer right now for downtown Chicago. Um, you know, no conventions, no real business traffic. You know, that's what a lot of these really large scale restaurants operate on and count on. So that's been tremendously difficult to recover from because when you don't have a convention of ten to 70,000 people coming in every week, uh, that certainly changes the landscape as well. I can't imagine what the, what the capacity percentage is right now. Um, and the average hotel, right. It just seems mind boggling to me. What situation. Right. Well, I mean, at the end of the day, like you can't control that. You can just control the reputation of your company. Mm-hmm. And, but the thing is like, it's not just, you know, with lettuce or with Shaw's you've built your own reputation on other things. And a lot of those things, have to do i think with diversifying your own skills i mean that's not always been about wine with you you're right um i spent a few years really kind of honing into spirits and cocktails and competing in that uh particular part of the business which was super fun and allowed me to meet a whole other subset of industry professionals that maybe I wouldn't have been exposed to otherwise so uh, that's that was really invaluable and I suggest that anybody who has a passion for cocktails and for spirits and bartending like do it Uh, spend some time doing that there's tons of opportunity out there to to learn and grow and compete and travel doing it. It's super fun. Uh, I, I've been to Hawaii. I've been to California. Um, I came to Chicago several times before I lived here and really met some incredible friends and colleagues. So that was also really important to the journey, you know, operations, spirits, wine. Um, Beer is not something I've ever really dove into all the way, you know, Maybe not. Maybe that's next on the docket, but I mean, I used to sell beer uh, when I was with one of a, a local distributor that sold beer and wine. And I will tell you, um, beer is enjoyable to sell, but it's a headache. And uh, I love a lot of breweries. Brewery tours to me are it's a it's a it's a coin flip on whether or not it's a good time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, there's a there's a big difference between 
certain breweries depending on location and how much access you get and sometimes uh the things that they tell you and what they show you but overall there is there's a lot of exciting things to do i think i want to go back though to your to your uh comments on competitions like what what are the, the first steps for uh, a, a wine lover, a wine pro sommelier who has an interest in cocktails and has maybe has access to the bar, but isn't really like, you know, the, the key person? Like, what, what do they do to get involved and stuff like that? So if you have like a, a lead bartender or somebody on your team who has the experience in prototyping and creating that's a really great person to go to. Um, I was fortunate that I had a multitude of those types of people available um, that were willing to teach me technique and, and theory. Um, there's just so many different books out there um, that will all kind of tell you the same thing. And it's kind of like a, a duh moment once you get into it. But the most important thing is balance. And it's the same thing in wine, right? So being a wine professional, you understand that certain flavors are complementary. Um, you understand that things need to be in line and in balance. So when you're making cocktails, you're kind of doing the same thing. You just have um, a different subset of, of flavors to deal with. And some of them you're creating yourself, right? When you make tinctures and syrups and and infusions and all kinds of stuff. So you've got a lot of creativity and you've got a lot of workable space, which is fun. Um, with the competition part of bartending, it's another kind of special skill set. You learn how to tell a story um, about a cocktail, um, sometimes based on the parameters that the competition has set. Uh, they want you to look at things through a specific lens or through a product through a specific lens, which as sommeliers, we already do. We're, we're always telling stories and learning facts and history about certain products. Um, and then you're presenting when you get there, right? So you, you learn technique, how to shake, how to stir. Um, and it's the same thing as opening a bottle of wine table side. It's a dance. It's practice. So it's really not too terribly different than the skills that we already have or we've already honed it's just a, a different dance right yeah i mean you're, you're talking you know steps of service grace composure theater and mm -hmm. not theater for the sake of theater but just knowing that you're on stage i think those are two very different concepts um on that note i'm a little shaken to the core here on some news flash that came out um, a few hours ago mm -hmm. i don't know if i don't know if you saw this um, but this is something that worth, is worth talking about. Um, this is the headline. Uh, Mountain Dew creates first cocktail for <laughs> Red Lobster. <laughs> of course I saw it. You posted it. <laughs> <laughs> it's called, it's called the, the Dew Garita. Um, it says it will be available soon at Red Lobster. Be rolling out to select restaurants in September and expected to be available nationwide by the end of this year. Um, the cocktail has the look of the soft drink and is Mountain Dew's take on a margarita and includes the citrus flavored soda, tequila, and a few other special ingredients. The new drink <laughs> will be exclusively <laughs> served at Red Lobster. And a suggested pairing is the seafood restaurant's Cheddar Bay Biscuits. 
Uh, any thoughts? Seven. Um, first of all, Cheddar Bay Biscuits rip, so nobody can make fun of that. Secondly, I am from a subset of working class suburbs south of Detroit that some folks lovingly call Dead River. Um, this is... You can take the girl out of Down River, but you can take the <laughs> Down River out of the girl, my friend. I will, I will try a Dugarita just to see what what it's all about. <laughs> I will, I, I will do that as well. I'm not sure where there is a Red Lobster in Chicago. I would have to Google that. I'm certain it's probably in a suburb. Um, so there's like that. There, there's, I feel like there's got to be one close to Magmile or River North. No we, way. We, no. No. Rents too high. Uh, probably, but I don't, I mean, we've got some chainy things down there, you know, but it's not, it's a little more genuine than that. <laughs> well, you know, Red Lobster is, is good at one thing, eating a lot of food quickly. Like you can, you can, you can feast at Red Lobster <laughs> and they'll kick you out of your booth in 45 minutes. <laughs> Get out. <laughs> I, I would try that. I mean, like I'm, you know, I'm, I, I'm not gonna lie. Like I've had a Mountain Dew this week. Like I, you know, <laughs> I haven't had a, a, I haven't had a Mountain Dew in like ten years. <laughs> Wait a second. So what, what's your what's your soda of choice then? So it's not really. I don't really drink soda. Um, I drink, you know, sparkling water, club soda, whatever comes out of the gun usually. However, if I cheat, we have a, we have a thing at work called a Dr. Coke. It's half Dr. Pepper, half Coca-Cola. And I'll, I'll have a, a little rocks glass of Dr. Coke once in a while. <laughs> no, I, 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 can go, I can get on board with that. That, yeah. seems, that seems pretty normal. I mean, <laughs> at the end of the day, like, you know, you need a little caffeine shot when you're having, you know, when you're there for 12 hours. And, you know, I, I understand that. What's, um, you know, a lot of things have changed for you since you've moved to, though, by the way. I mean, it's not just like you know, you getting to talk about cocktails and you getting to do these competitions, like you're a little bit removed from those things to an extent because your role has just changed this grander level, you know? So do you miss those things? Um, I still get to do a lot of them, which is the cool part of my role is um, I can, can do those things if I choose to. I try to focus on training and development so that way I don't have to do those things. And so, um, you know, you can lift the next person up and hopefully train them to do more things in their own career. I think that's really important. Um, sometimes when you, when you hoard those things, you don't give others a chance. So I've been really cognizant of not hoarding those things. Um, well, yeah. Uh, on the on the wine side, you were uh, you were you were named in Wine Spirits magazine for one of the uh, best new sommeliers, 2019. Gosh, that was just it. Still is such a crazy thing. Like I have a, a couple copies of that magazine stashed in my my credenza bookcase, and every so often I'll oh be sorting through something and see it, and it's just unbelievable. I uh, it was so important for me, not because it was a nationally published magazine, but because my friends and colleagues took the time to say, Hey, look, that person's doing a good job. It's not, um, 
it's not a thing that you can get with good PR. It's not a thing that you can get with like um, a marketing company or something behind you. It's genuine. And it was just so special and still is so special to me for that exact reason, like humbling and beautiful and uh, something that I will be proud of and cherish for the rest of my life. And sir, you are also part of that club. <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah, it's a weird, it's a weird feeling. And, you know, it's being in a tiny place. Like, I mean, where, where my restaurant is, there's the city's literally has like 3000 people. Right. Like, that's it. Um, so it's very surreal. Um, I, but that's the cool thing is that I know that wine is very universal and the community knows each other. Like we've met a lot of people from other parts of the country that have yeah. become good friends. And, you know, I, I don't bring this up to, to say like this should ruin anything or does ruin anything. Uh, but it's a complicated story to tell about that, the cover of that magazine and the situation of what 2019 yeah. is. Mm-hmm. And I, there's, how do you feel about that? It was a little bit of a gut punch at first. Um, and I had to resolve that within myself. And uh, there's, there was another um, friend and colleague of mine in Chicago who had noticed that I was a little upset by that. And he was also um, one of Wine and Spirit's Best New Psalms several years back. And he kind of checked me and said, you know, Kat, I understand that that it can feel ruined because of something like that. But nobody can take away uh, the hard work you've done and the kind of person you are and the relationships you have. He was like, so don't ever let someone else's misstep uh, make you feel less. And that was so important. And the thing was, is I, I hadn't even really articulated it to him personally he just kind of like saw how that was something that affected me and pulled me aside one day at a tasting and just said hey look I see this in you and I see that it's upsetting to you and and just gave some words of encouragement and that was really cool so for those that don't know um it's not worth going in great lakes to on this specific episode but uh the gentleman on the cover of the 2019 uh, Wine and Spirits um, issue for Best New Sommeliers, uh, shortly thereafter the cover was published, uh, had been met with a series of sexual harassment allegations. And there's some very interesting uh, information and uh, quotes that go onto that. And, um, you know, it's, I don't think this is like the correct time to go into that particular episode, but I, the culture, I think, is, is something worth mentioning. And the culture that I'm speaking of isn't necessarily, and I don't want to condense it and distill it to the hashtag MeToo culture, but what concerns me more than anything about this is the toxic relationships that people build in the industry. And, you know, one thing that I think a lot of people have tried to do as you get older, especially when you see the mistakes that maybe we've all made, is how to remove toxicity and what you do to not be a person that puts that on somebody else. And then I'd, I'd be curious to your thoughts, not necessarily on the, the gentleman from the cover. You can elaborate if you want to, hmm. but, but just your feelings on those negative kind of harsh, bad things that happen. And of course, obviously this happens in a lot of industries. It's not just alcohol, but be cu- I'd be curious for your thoughts on that. 
just on like the the dynamic of of how those relationships come to be or well we're, um, we're how they we're affect a, us as as women in the business i think it's i think it's multifaceted i think it's okay. like there's there's a toxic toxic nature to certain elements to our business uh-huh. they they systemically affect women much more than men and they also affect mental health of a lot of people overall that's clearly based on issues uh, related to pressure at work, um, you know, trauma clearly is an issue um, that is related to that. And there's, I mean, you know, I'm not talking about this asking for answers like you know the answers. Right. I'm just curious as to your opinions on how you see the industry shaping up right now versus where maybe it was a few years ago and using that cover as sort of like a signpost as to where it's going. Okay. Um, I think certainly with the me too movement and a lot of people feeling empowered to speak out against things that they maybe normally wouldn't have. Um, I think that's certainly something that has been positive, um, over the last few years. Um, I came from a background, um, and early on in my career, I was treated very, very differently because I was a woman and there were a lot of things said to me that um, I never even thought twice about, right? I thought that maybe this is just the way that people talk to you at work. And now that a lot of these things have come to light as being bad or wrong, um, I think back to those times, I'm like, oh my God, why didn't I say something, right? Um, this shouldn't have been allowed type of thing. And had people not started to come out and share those stories, I don't think that I would have gotten to that place as quickly or felt empowered to, to say something. Um, fortunately for me, it hasn't been like any sort of sexual harassment that, that crosses any line into physical harm. Um, but there was certainly a lot of mental anguish that went along with the way that I've been treated in, in situations um, that now I would never, ever stand for. Um, you know, there would be a light shown on that so quickly. Um, and I don't know if that's my own kind of strength and coming of age and coming into my own skin or if that is a combination of, of that and knowing that others have gone through it and it's not taboo to talk about it any longer. It helps being a part of a system of somebody else recognizing that something's wrong. And if you're part of a group of people and somebody makes a joke and six people laugh at the joke and you don't, I mean, you probably feel like you're messed up for not laughing at the joke, but something inside you says otherwise, right? Right. So I guess where I get concerned and this is not a concerning thing about like uh, your job or anything. This is just a concern for, about the industry is that conversation happens over time. It's like, it's like business to business. What, which, which John Bash is going to fall, you know, which, what industry is going to get hit by what next. And all it takes is a coalescence of, well, two people got sexually harassed by this person. And then all of a sudden, they hear about this other person who got sexually harassed by this person nine months later. And so they connect and they talk and they talk and they build stories together. Like, Oh, he did that. He did that. He did that. I didn't know, you know, and that's the scary thing to me is that they hide like, like 
predators hide in silos. They silo people and they keep them away from other people so that they can continually act like this. And it's so incredibly difficult to prove hardly any of this shit. And I get really concerned that there's just still far too many restaurants that are built like that. I think you're right. And I think a lot of it happens in places where, you know, you're largely unchecked. You are a manager or a chef or an owner or a partner or a smaller group. And you are the kind of like sole power, right? So not a lot of people will stand up and, and challenge you if you do something wrong. And I think people need to remember that um, that's just a small piece of their ecosystem. There's a huge industry out there. And if you're being treated inappropriately, you need to walk away and, and find a new place to go where you are safe and happy and thriving. Um, and you don't, you don't have to stay in any one system because you feel like you're trapped. I'm certain that if you were hired into a place based on any sort of critical acclaim or, or whatever, and, and you want to be there because you think it's important, that you are good enough to get a job somewhere else where you aren't treated poorly. And I think that not serving these, these people's interests any longer and walking away is important. You know, just because this is the best chef in the city, they shouldn't treat you like garbage. They shouldn't speak down to you. They shouldn't sexually harass you. They shouldn't mentally or verbally or physically assault you in any sort of way. And if everybody stands up and says, this isn't right, and I refuse to be here, they have no success, right? I think this goes beyond sexual harassment, too. I think this is a a power thing where if they can convince people that what they are is someone that lacks talent and power and authority, then they're never going to question anything about what they have to say. They're just going to accept it. But that's, that's the scary thing. Is it like, you know, I've, I'm proud of this. I have no problem saying this whatsoever. Like I, I have two former sommeliers managers who were on my staff who have absolutely killer jobs now. And I was, I, there was no part of me that ever wanted to tell them, that what they were doing was wrong, that they weren't good enough to go. Like I actively told both of them to go seek jobs, uh, one more than the other, but I felt like this was a situation where it's just like, like how can you, like what kind of person with a conscience would act like that? And then you have to remember they're sociopaths and they probably don't have <laughs> a good conscience. So that's part of it. But, but that big, like that's, those, those managers were, were men. They, there's a different relationship and, the, the hard part that I find is trying to figure out systemically beyond calling friends out, beyond sticking your neck out and calling it for what it is. Like, like what are the things that have to change? Like that's, that's an interesting question. What are the things that have to change? Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's, it's at every level, right? It's workers refusing to work in places where they're treated poorly, right? Standing up for themselves and leaving it's peers holding other peers accountable for their actions. Um, you know, if you heard from someone else that I was acting like a jackass and, you know, treating people poorly and, and putting them down and, and, and all of those things, like, I would hope that at some point you'd be like, hey, man, I heard, I heard you're being a real dick. Can you not do that anymore? Like, it's not good for anybody. And, and people have to check themselves 
laterally. They need to check themselves up and down the ladder. It's it's a lot of actions that, that need to happen. And like you said, restaurants are notoriously toxic for many reasons. And I think one of them is also um, people not caring for themselves health-wise. Uh, substance abuse can often be a factor. Alcohol abuse. So you really have to like examine so many facets of our business in order to get to the bottom of it. Are you... Do you feel like Chicago is pretty supportive as uh, the circle uh, that you, the people that you know, do you feel like Chicago is healthy in that way? Absolutely. Um, I feel like I have friends and colleagues that are grown and mature and at the top of their game. Uh, You know, I've recently had an experience with someone who I called a friend who I think thought that they were just going to come here and party and they were sorely disappointed because everybody here is, is working on their own thing, man. They're working hard. They take their job seriously. They take care of themselves. You know, the, the people I call friends and colleagues are constantly posting about the run they're going on or the exercise they did, or, you know, the time they were able to invest in themselves in order to then invest in their teams and in their respective careers and if you're not taking care of you, you're never going to get any better. And, and I think that the culture of a lot of the sommelier community here is exactly that. It certainly helps for, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, you know, we've, we've had some time in, in the industry, so we've, we've seen the ups and downs of how those nights can go. But also, yeah. like, I mean, organizationally, I mean, you've got Second City Psalms, yeah. and that's not something that a lot of cities have anything close to. That is correct. It is something that, thank goodness, I was invited to very early on. I was very scared. <laughs> I just remember being so sweaty. <laughs> I didn't speak for weeks, uh, which was fun. Um, but, you know, it's, it's such an amazing resource with so many people who um, are just, like I said, at the top of their game, right? They're studying for exams. They're in the distribution side. They're in the supply side. They run restaurants. They run, you know, these giant programs. Like, I remember sitting there, and I probably texted our our group uh, text around that time saying, holy shit, you know, I'm sitting at a table with two of the Psalms from Alinea, two master Psalms, and somebody from RPM, and somebody from... Uh, you know, gosh, who else? Uh, RL and so, it, just all of these magnificent places and these like huge talents. And I was like, please don't call on me. Please don't call on me. And I'm a good taster. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I was so intimidated, but gosh, they're just such wonderful people. Like, welcoming and inviting and, and here to spread the good word and to lift each other up. So, there's instead of creating a sandbox for four people, when 10 people show up, they just make the sandbox bigger. Yeah. I mean, there's certainly rules and procedures to keep us like on track. You know, you sign up for things, but like, I I believe it's expanded to more than one group at this point. Uh, They've done a lot of work over this COVID time to keep everybody in the loop and um, what feels safe for everyone. A lot of surveys have gone out. Um, 
a lot of Zoom, a lot of educational opportunities. Unfortunately, again, because of my workload and how my role has changed a little bit, I don't, I don't get to participate as much as I would like to, but I don't feel excluded because, you know, I get these emails once a week that tell me what's going on, what they're doing, how to be included, how to jump in, um, and can do so at any time without feeling weird about maybe not being there every week. So you've been talking through this conversation and a couple, a couple things that have sort of like come up uh, consistently and various stages of your career, you're talking about one particular thing that sticks out and it's a stage that you feel is a new, and in that new stage, you are feeling an overwhelming amount of anxiety. Oh yeah. At first, that's I mean, for sure. But, but I mean, that doesn't last, but, but as, but, but your career has grown. And as, as you go from step one to two to three to five to eight, you're still talking about anxiety and, that's sort of interesting to think about because the person that's on the, on that's in the magazine, you know, 2019 best new is, you know, what does, what does Kat Hawkins who's in that stage tell Kat Hawkins, the server at the age of 20, you know, like, what would you say? Um, don't, don't let any of the fear um, of looking stupid or maybe not knowing everything holds you back. You know, you don't know what you don't know, and that's okay. And people at every stage of the game have something to learn. If you stop learning, then you're doing it wrong. Um, the best leaders in our business um, are always learning, and will tell you that they're always learning. The best leaders in our business have shared with me over time that, you know, they learn from people at every stage. Um, I've heard masters who give the intro and certified exams regularly say, you know, I learn a lot from, from candidates. I learn a lot from people seeing these exams. I learn a lot from people um, on their way into the program. And that's true. I, I think that if you ever think that you're too good to learn something new, then you're in trouble. Um, but just don't, don't be afraid to be a little bit uncomfortable in some situations because you'll, you'll grow through the discomfort and learn so much more on the other side. What helps somebody grow through the discomfort? <sighs> um, just not stopping because it feels a little bit uncomfortable. I'm a pretty neurotic and anxious person to begin with. So Sometimes stepping into a new situation is hard for me because I like to, to research and go slow. I'm not like a, a head first kind of person sometimes. And so sometimes you just, just got to roll with it. It's okay. It's totally okay to show up somewhere where you don't know somebody and say hi and sit down and just be there for the experience and, and sit through it because at the end, you might have a new friend and you'll definitely have some more knowledge. So just keep going. And obviously that's a little bit more difficult right now. There's not nearly as many taste opportunities that's going to change eventually, I would assume, Um, you know, but I I just keep thinking of those who are in like, you know, really like, you know, small markets who, who want to make a move because it's like, Oh, there's no real opportunities for you there. Well, there might not be opportunities for you there that you think that you want, 
you can still learn in certain ways and get yourself prepped to Absolutely. go to other places. And, Absolutely. you know, and it's clear that you made that jump for yourself and you thought it out. Oh yeah. It took me only 10 years to get here. I joke about that all the time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think, I mean, I think it all, it all worked out in a, in a positive way, but I, I cracked that joke a lot too. God, it only took me 10 years to pull the trigger. Um, but in that time, there were a lot of things I learned, you know, we talked about it briefly earlier. I learned a lot about spirits and bartending and, and cocktails. And I learned a lot about operations and, um, managing a business and reading a profit and loss sheet. I learned a lot about, um, what it takes to have some perseverance, right? You know, being from a smaller market, being from Detroit, you're used to kind of digging your heels in and having a little bit of grit. Like, the opportunities don't just fall out of the sky in Michigan. And so having tenacity to keep going after the things that you want was a lesson that I learned from being there. I will, I will never discount the fact that I came from a smaller market or that I had to be a little more crafty in order to get the things that I wanted. Yeah. The thing about working in a smaller market, and this is not to put up, this is not to demean anybody's hard work because hard work is hard work. But Correct. I, I really think that people in larger markets may not understand the isolation of trying to do these sorts of things in the wine business. And that doesn't absolve us from the responsibility of finding a way to make it work regardless. Like we still have to figure it out ourselves and it's on us if we want to be in the, in, in the marketplace and if we want to test for certifications, like all those things matter, but it is more on us, but the, but the resources are there, aren't they? I'm here to tell you that the people in these large markets have absolutely no idea what it is like to be from a place where you just simply don't have the access, you don't have the volume, and people aren't investing the time or the budget in taking you to places around the globe. I'm telling you with every degree of certainty that I have had exponentially more opportunities to do things in Chicago than I ever had in Detroit. I believe it. You know, as... As an entrepreneur and former sommelier before I owned a business, um, you know, I probably have taken upwards of 30 to 40 research and development trips to places like New York and Toronto and Chicago mm -hmm. for these exact reasons. It's like it's not just trying to get a lay of the land, but trying to get a feel for what service feels like. And I, I'm also going to tell you, like, this is I'll never I'll never name names because it's not about that. But I have had there have been so many times where I've been to renowned uh, wine bars and received shit service and it bothers me but then I do go places and I'm like oh these guys get it these guys get it like Purple Pig oh my god the, the service at Purple Pig and the people there it's amazing like for what for what they offer like I love going there even though it's like you wouldn't think you know it's in the middle of the, this tourist center part of Chicago but like every time I've had a lunch there it ends up being a three hour lunch and I end up having these long conversations with the bartenders and you know, it's that sort of thing is is what really excites me about this industry. And I think coming from Detroit, you know, you're a, you're a particularly interesting kind of case study because it's not like you didn't do that anyway in Detroit. Like you you interacted with all sorts of people, cocktail culture, bartenders, servers, wine, wine full, you know, salespeople like 
you got to know your city in and out before you moved to Chicago. It's not like you were there on an island. Correct. But, you know, as, as far as research and development trips, being a Detroiter and for you, a Michigander, I mean, we go to Chicago, right? Like that's kind of like our benchmark and our barometer. I mean, Toronto also, because Toronto rocks. But like, I mean, how many times in our life and in our career as Detroiters and Michiganders is the benchmark, especially for the Midwest, Chicago, right? You know, you just hop down to Chicago for a day or like the big tasty. Um, you know, you, you make it a point to come down here. I mean, uh, HD did a bus for a bunch of their salespeople and, and good uh, buyers and sommeliers and important people in the market to come down here for the big Bordeaux tasting the last couple of years. Like, this is, this is where people come to. So, I mean, like I said, it, it's wild to be a part of that now because uh, it felt like something that was unattainable at one point. But I don't know. It's. What's un- did it feel unattainable because it, did it feel like a club or it's just that it was just so big? It, no, it just was so big. And, and that's your own. Uh, I think that was my own, again, you know, anxiety or lack of confidence too. like, oh, man, I don't know if I'll make it there when really I've been training for it the whole time. <laughs> I mean. I, I will take I will take myself out of this equation because somebody else can judge what I'm good and bad at, and that's totally fine. But the people who I know in this industry who have skills, like real skills, sommelier skills, could make it in major markets at Michelin level restaurants. They just straight up could. Yeah, I mean, there's you know they're they're that talented. It feels intimidating until you do it, right? Until you show up and and you're like, no, no my training is correct. My hard work is correct. It might not be perfect, but if you're open and willing to learn and willing to say, Oh, let me just make that correction or let me do it the way that you want it done here in your space, then you'll be fine. And it took you how long in Chicago to feel that way? Mm, I would say the better part of the first year. I think once I, I got my footing after probably about nine months or so. I started buying rather quickly um, once my training finished at Shaw's. I started getting to know people. And, you know, I remember thinking, God, everybody here is so nice. And I wouldn't have thought that coming to a bigger city. I thought, oh, man, this might be a little rough for me. Everybody was so nice. And they just wanted to see good people doing well and helping each other. So that was really, really cool. The thing that I'm constantly reminded of is that it's not a sandbox thing, but it's there's always an opportunity, whether the company has 5,000 employees or 50, to build an extremely positive, vibrant culture that feels amazing and feels rewarding or feels like somebody's at your throat. And... You know, it's, it's that thing, like the size of the company does not make you immune to that. And I have definitely watched companies that have 10 to 20 to 30 employees absolutely just be run like, you know, they're on fire. And it's, it's unfortunate because that's how you drive away talent. Absolutely. Um, I mean, who wants to go to work and feel crappy? No one. And I, one thing I, and you're, I mean, you, you've, 
been managing now for a while in your career. And this is a lesson that I've learned. I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on this too, is that like, I have learned there, there are mistakes that I, I, I accept right. mistakes that people make that I are, I'm like, why is this happening? This, there's no reason for this. And I accept it. If it happens once, if it happens twice, if it's a pattern, we start talking emails, face to face, whatever. But like, you know, there are things that do drive me mad at first, but then I'm realizing, you know what? I make flaw. I, I do stupid stuff all the time. I cannot, I can't micromanage this person's every mistake. Like they, they need to get their, their wings, you know, as, as wide as possible. And I feel like all, all of these nitpicky things that you can do to a server or, or a, a busser just, just aren't worth it sometimes. So I was taught a long time ago when I was first promoted um, by someone and when he was actually, I mean, I had worked with him briefly uh, as a trainer and opening the store, but when he was kind of interviewing me to see if I wanted to stay on and be promoted to management, he said something to me that has stayed with me through my entire career. And I, I like to go back to it when I get frustrated or when I'm like kind of too zoomed in on something. Um, he's like, Kat, you're going to make mistakes no matter what, but there's two kinds of mistakes. There's mistakes of the head and mistakes of the heart. And he's like, if you make mistakes of the head, that's fine. We all do boneheaded things. Um, you know, we all see things a little differently or maybe we weren't trained. He's like, but mistakes of the heart are different. If you're doing things that are malicious or bad um, or morally wrong, then those are the mistakes that we're going to have a problem with. Because I can train you to fix mistakes of the head anytime, but it's within you to have a good heart. And that has always stayed with me and um, kind of been a little bit of a guiding light when I get, you know, grumpy about something or I feel like um, I'm getting upset with somebody uh, unnecessarily. Do you see a lot of restaurants that, fit into that philosophy? I mean, I, I clearly we would want to see more, but do you, do you feel like there's a lot of places that people can land that would operate like that? You would certainly hope so. Um, I'm fortunate that the situation I'm in now, I think kind of operates on that premise in so many words. Um, I almost feel like you have to tell somebody like, Hey, if you get a vibe that this is not the right place, get the fuck out quick. Yeah. Like, don't, don't even waste time. Get yeah, out. Yeah, seriously. Uh, life's too short, Justin. It's, if you feel badly about what you're doing or the way that someone is treating you, just, just go because there's a million other places out there in the world, and chances are you'll find your tribe. You know, one can hope that. And I think the, the beautiful thing is uh, the internet, the internet is, is a tool in many ways. I mean, it's also an advertising platform, I guess at this point, but, <laughs> I mean, there are ways to find good people that will connect you with other good people. And all it takes is writing somebody an email, a, a message saying, Hey, listen, do you know anything about any gigs in this area? Or what are some restaurants that you really like that I can go sit at the bar and talk shop? Or do you know, a, uh, do you know a sales rep in Chicago that I can talk to who wants to who can give me like a little bit of like 10 minutes of a one-on-one on what the business is like. Like it's really easy to connect with people now. Absolutely. And the thing that has been really cool here, not only in my professional life, but in my personal life. And I feel, I feel like such an old fuddy duddy that like, I just now am getting into this, but um, Facebook groups, 
So, like, I'm in a Facebook group. I'm in two of them for the neighborhood I live in, which is Logan Square. And people are wonderful sharing resources and recommendations and um, donating things. Um, There are several Chicago industry groups. One of them is very toxic and gross. Um, But there are... But there are a couple that are just wonderful, and um, one of them is, you know, female-driven um, to help other females and, and uh, empower them and help them with issues in the industry and, and outside of it. And it's just, like, it's so incredible to see the connection uh, in, a, in a, such a stressful time right now where a lot of things are, are negative and, like, reported on being negative these groups that I, I just watch and I feed myself with are, are so positive and so great. And I love watching the connection and the camaraderie, whether it be, like I said, industry driven, neighborhood driven. Um, you know, I'm such a dork. I'm in another like plant swap group because I like house plants, <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and people are so cool. Like, sharing information and resources and it's just like a feel-good thing of the day when you know your feed is so clogged up with so many negative things just watching people be nice to each other is important and I think that finding those Facebook groups has made connection easy and I would certainly recommend that to to others who are newer to a neighborhood or to a, a city and try to maybe reach out and use that resource it seems like the wide um variety for opportunity in those situations to reach out for whatever your your interests are are met with something else and that you never really know who somebody is until you maybe you meet them or they show a side of them after they've been drinking or (laughs) if they're on drugs i mean like sometimes you just don't know and i think part of it and i've been thinking a lot about this myself as i moved through my career in the past month or so as, as i started the podcast was and this is a very specific thing i thought about was step one identify this poison step two is this poison fixable step three if not cut the poison out don't look back absolutely and i think that you and i have encountered several of the same situations um over the last year or so and that's just that's the alcohol industry i feel like that's just that's i mean people people definitely consume as a coping mechanism and it's fun it's fun to go out and drink really good bottles of wine. It, uh-huh. just, it just is. And, you know, sometimes things happen that make it harder to deal with the next day. And I, I get why those things happen. This is not new news to anyone who hasn't had alcohol before. <laughs> but, but like, like you said, like, you know, like as your career, you know, as you get into your career, it's sort of like, okay, maybe it's time to stop, stop these things and yeah. find, find the balance of what actually connects you back to you. Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, your health and your well-being is something that will turn around and translate to the health and the well-being of, you know, your team, your friends, your family. Um, it makes you a better leader. It makes you um, a better teacher. It makes you a more pleasant person to work with. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Well, you know, I think, I think one thing that I would close with in, you know, I, I know we could talk for hours, but I don't oh think gosh, anyone, know, right? <laughs> nobody wants, yeah, nobody needs to hear about our stories about dolphin emojis or anything like that. But, <laughs> um, I would, I would ask your opinion on where you feel 
your involvement in studying is going in the future and any advice that you would have to anybody else that's studying? Oh, Lord. I knew we would get here. Um, to, to anyone who knows me well, they know that um, I think I've picked a lot of, I don't want to call them practical because I don't want the scholarly side of this to seem discounted. I've picked career advancement over investing time in bookwork over the last five years. Um, I've tried to balance both, and it's really hard to do. I often think back to the open letter that Shane Bjornholm wrote to advanced and master's candidates several years ago. Um, Sometimes having that GM or wine director job uh, isn't the easiest things to do while studying for these exams. I am a living and breathing representation of that. Um, I've taken the advanced exam a lot of times. Um, I joke with people in study situations that I'm a pro and uh, that I can give you any advice you probably want or need. Um, <laughs> and my issue is often the bookwork and rote memorization that goes along with passing the theory portion of these exams. It's okay to take a couple tries. It's okay to not feel badly about yourself because of those things. But what you need to do, and what I'm going to do walking into this next round, is really and truly set the time aside. Um, You can't have it all. You can't have a burgeoning social life, a huge responsibility at work, um, and think that you can fit the time in to study for something like this. It's not something you can cram for. It's something that takes time and energy and effort, and you have to feed it, and you have to water it, and you have to love it. And my, my best advice to anybody going through, especially the, the higher levels of these tests, is to take the time for yourself and to not feel badly about not going to every single tasting group or thing or trade show or event because you got to find your balance. And right now, your balance is investing the time in yourself to move forward. That's a really tough lesson to learn because it feels like if you don't go to those things then you're not in the club. But like the thing is like everyone is just going to those things and that's good. That's part of their career. But like you don't know their reasons for doing their things and it's okay. You have a path, you have your own path. And, you know, part of what you're saying is like, I I really identify with it because it's like, okay, how in the world do you balance a full-time job, um, family and or relationships, um, actual studying, tasting, socializing, and like mental and physical exercise and health. Like how in the fucking world (laughs) there's 24 hours to the day. Like it is just not possible. And so many people that, that accelerate quickly are people that are in a position where like, you know, they're around like four or five core other people who do the same thing. And that's great. And they're focused right on that. And that there's nothing wrong with that path either at all. I'm not calling that path out, but there's nothing wrong with you saying, 
you know, I really like my job here in Detroit, but I, I had my eyes on these two or three or four jobs in Chicago. I'm going to get myself ready for that. I'm going to go for that. I see, like, I mean, I, the, the way I know, like, the, the version of Cat that I know in 2020 is very different than the version I knew in 2016. And I think that you, has everything to do with not a, a maturation process, but has more to do with identifying what makes you tick and what makes you feel balanced. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and it's, it's funny you asked that question because the last several days have been kind of wrought with the, okay, you know, you've got to take this knowledge exam. Um, you know what it is, you know what the deal is, you know what to do. And I don't want to make the same mistake again. Like how many times can you make the same mistake of not investing the time in, um, and making excuses for it. It's just, it's insanity. It's expensive. It's embarrassing. Uh, you know, Madeline said something to me at the last exam I took, she looked me in the face and said, all right, did you do the work? And I said, nope. And she said, you're going to finally do the work or are we just going to keep doing this? And I said, you're right. And, <laughs> you know, that was kind of all it took was someone really that I love and respect, um, really just kind of looking me in the face and calling me on my own shit. Right. Like, did you do the work? No, I didn't do the work. All right. You're going to do the work. Yeah, I'll do the work. You know, <laughs> as, as silly as it sounds, um, you needed sometimes you need somebody to hold a mirror up to you and, and call you on your own crap uh considering how hard these tests are i think you absolutely need at least one person in your life to do that at yeah. least yeah and so, you know everyone's got their own issues um that eat into their time or their confidence and that's that's just normal human behavior so it's like I, like you know I, I have problems with guilt about that like oh i didn't get this done but then i remember oh my life is exhausting so like okay it's fine not a big deal i didn't get it done i'll get to it eventually but like yeah you just you just have to find a way to get truth from somebody and have that trusting relationship and say no bullshit tell me how it is i need to hear it well and i think we put these fictitious um timelines on ourselves also right so you know you watch your peers go through the same process as you and some of them fly through right i mean they fly through the court they fly through these exams and um i'm willing to to use this as an example out loud because he called himself out and i thought it was just incredible um reading Brian McClintock's yeah, resignation. I, I figured you were going to say that was like, it was something that I read and it like kind of struck me through the heart because I, I don't know this person. Well, right. He administered one of my advanced exams a long, long time ago, the first one actually, and was so kind and, and just such a human being about the whole thing um, that I always showed, you know, some, respect and adoration towards him and, you know, watching the movie and just finding that this person was like jovial and, and kind and compassionate and finding the humor in, in all of the stressors. I always was kind of drawn to that, um, as someone to look up to. And then reading that open letter about how, you know, I kind of flew through this experience and, and don't feel like I maybe have the same skills as some people who, who don't have the same title as I do. I mean, I thought that was just fascinating and 
something that made me reflect and say, it's okay to not fly through this. It's okay that you have your own path. It's okay that you've learned all these lessons. Um, and, and you don't have to do it in a set timeline, right? I don't even know, you know, I, what the timeline is supposed to look like right now, too. I think a lot of people are concerned about that. And I think maybe 2020 should be just a reminder. I've tried to use it, at least for me, as a reminder. Of like, I am not in control of the world. I don't get to decide when things happen to me. I get to decide how I respond to those things. And that's for it. Sure. That, that's Absolutely. All, that's all, yeah, and that's all you can do. And that's a hard lesson to learn. Oh, totally. But, you know, um, yeah, speaking of dolphin emojis, we should probably <laughs> wrap, up, <laughs> wrap this up. Um, I do want to say uh, very much, uh, for those that don't know, Kat and I have known each other for a while. We're good friends. And it's nice to see you thrive in Chicago. Um, thank you. Thank you so much for, for talking with me. This obviously is a very easy conversation to have. Um, very much appreciated. No, thank you for having me. I always love... Uh being able to contribute to friends projects and I listened to the first several episodes and I thought they were great. And I'm super excited to see who else uh, comes across here. I'm really excited. From, uh, from down river to river North. Is that, so that's, that's how it goes. Ooh, that's a hell of a tagline. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's beautiful. Anyway, thanks again. Uh, good luck with the rest of the summer. I know we will catch up soon. All right. Sounds good, Justin. Take care. Bye. Right.